This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today my guest is Chastity Washington. Chastity is the director of the Center for Cancer Health Equity here at the James, a job and an issue that have always been vital and have become even more important in recent months as discussions on social justice and equality and inequality have taken center stage. The Black Lives Matter movement has gained a lot of well-deserved traction and the COVID-19 pandemic has further exposed the inequality in our healthcare system. Welcome to the podcast, Chastity. I think we have a lot of important ground to cover today. Yes, hi, and thank you for having me. This is, like you said, a timely topic, something that we in the center have been working on for a very long time, so I'm just glad to be here and to share today. Well, let's start with an overview on racism and uh, implicit bias, what they are, how they impact people and create a disparity in healthcare and the urgent need for the Center for Cancer Health Equity that you lead. I mean, this is a huge topic that we could just talk on that alone for hours or days. But again, sort of tailor it a little bit toward the healthcare and in particular cancer. Right. So um, I guess starting out with just a definition of racism in general. Um, so this is overt, um, conscious bias, prejudice, discrimination that takes place when people have certain preconceived ideas about another group, gender, uh, people's sexual orientation or gender identity. So those are sort of the the purposeful um, feelings that someone has towards another group, whether true or false, often based on stereotypes or uh, life experiences. And then within that, what's really important and what um, we're seeing a lot of protests about now is what's called systemic racism. So that's what's the um, policies, procedures, things that are in place that allow things such as police brutality and for things like, you know, Breonna Taylor to not have justice for such a long period of time because of the processes and systems that are in place that don't allow that. Um, and this systemic racism can lead to issues, um, not only such as discrimination, but there's um, housing issues and redlining, and we can talk about that. And like you said, disparities in health care as well as education. And all of these things impact health and health disparities. Um, they're called what's uh, the social determinants of health. So education and all those things that are affected by the systemic racism then have a, a impact on what's um, going on within minority communities as far as health. Um, and then we talk about implicit bias. And so these are the unconscious biases. So this is something where a person is not necessarily racist, but again, because of those experiences, because of things they've seen or heard um, throughout their lifetime, they might have what's called an unconscious bias. So this may be something, again, stereotypes um, in the back of their mind that in a situation, for instance, in healthcare, um, if you're in a high pace setting with a patient, um, those things may come into play. So again, it's not something that you're consciously doing, but because of uh, a time crunch or, you know, if you're doing an interview and you um, pick a white person over a black person, not because you're consciously doing that, but subconsciously these implicit biases are what um, can cause issues in healthcare and other settings. So we talk about um, the IAT or Harvard Implicit Association Test, and we like to encourage people to take those because then it will help you 
to identify these unconscious biases that people don't usually know that they have. Um, and then we do at OSU offer some implicit bias training because once you identify those biases, you need to be able to give people skills to kind of mitigate those. What is the name of that test again that people could take? And I, I'm guessing you can take it online. Yes, it's online. And it's, um, again, it's, if you Google Harvard uh, IAT or Implicit Association Test, it will come up. And it's been around for a really long time. Um, you can take tests on religion, uh, gender bias. You can take it on race. Um, there's um, sexual orientation, gender identity. So there's a lot of different tests that you can take just to see if you have a bias in any of those areas. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this as I prepared to talk to you. And and I think everyone, and when I say everyone, I literally mean everyone has some sort of unconscious or implicit bias in them. And that's the society we, we grew up in. It's been part of our history from the beginning. But it seems like the important part is to take these tests, to think about it, to ask questions, to recognize that in yourself and become a better person. That I think that's what the last month or two, that's what I've been taking away from this last month. How can I learn more about my implicit bias and what can I do to overcome it and be a more open, accepting person? Correct. And I think there's a lot of that. Um, we did some anti-racism discussions at the James um, in the last couple of weeks, and a lot of people were attending and sharing. But what I found most often was people wanted to know how they could help, how they could do better on an individual basis. Um, you know, they wanted things to read, and they wanted information on how they could, you know, work on um, kind of microaggressions and things that they were doing, not only at work, but then also in their personal lives. So to me, I think that's one positive, at least from all of this that's going on, is that people are becoming aware and they want to do better and they want to learn more. So yeah, that is a perfect, I think, place to start. And I always tell people to be kind to yourself because we are very egocentric, very ethnocentric. So you're all, you're going to have a bias most likely in one of the categories, um, if not multiple. And that, again, does not mean you're racist, doesn't mean that at all. It just means that we do have these unconscious thoughts and biases that can come into play they may never come into play, but they could, so. Okay. Now, Ohio recently declared racism a, a public health issue, so now we're sort of getting closer to, to what you do. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I know other states have and are doing the same thing. Um, declaring racism a health issue, uh, how will that impact African Americans? How will it hopefully lead to better health care? So and I think what it's going to do is it's going to put it in the forefront. So there's a lot of people that have focused on health disparities in their work, but it's um, not been across the board. So what I've seen is now it's being put into policies. They're looking at practices and procedures. They're looking at um, a lot of the objectives and goals that we set, like Healthy People 2020. Um, for cancer, we have a state cancer plan. So now that we're looking at um, racism as a, as a public health issue, people are incorporating health equity goals and everything that they're doing now. So we're working on the um, state cancer plan right now, and we are making sure that every objective for every disease site, everything that we're doing, has some sort of health equity component to it, that we're looking at the disparities in lung cancer, breast cancer, and making sure that when we come up with our goals and objectives, that that's included. So I think that's going to be huge. Um, whereas, again, it, some of it was being done by different departments like ours in different areas. This is going to make it 
in the forefront and across the board and you know also is starting to have people look outside of again clinical care but what can we do partnering with education systems and housing and making sure that we're attacking everything from all sides not just looking at the clinical care that the individuals receive yeah because i've heard that that where you live where you go to school where you work that impacts your health Mm-hmm. And so it's not just healthcare. Everything's all part of a system that goes together, and you've got to improve the entire system. Correct. So that's a great background and an understanding of some of the issues that the Center for Cancer Health Equity deals with and has been dealing with. So give us, walk us through some of the, the programs that you've been doing that, that address this disparity issue. Right. So our center has been around since um, around 2003, and we look at, again, cancer health disparities. We look at the populations that are in Ohio. What are those cancers that they get more often? What are the barriers they have to care? Um, do they participate in clinical trials? How can we encourage them to participate if they don't? Um, so we have um, several different uh, program managers that focus on different communities, um, so we have bilingual staff that speak Spanish, Mandarin, Nepali, um, Somali, and then, of course, we have folks that reach out to African-American communities. And we've done um, things that focus on access, so helping them get in for cancer screenings, helping them to get um, their screenings and any follow-up care covered if they don't have insurance, um, linking them to insurance if they're eligible but just haven't been able to figure out the system. Um, We provide navigation um, after a diagnosis, um, so that could be very costly. There's financial toxicity involved, so what can we do to connect them to resources that they may not know exist? Um, And then we also offer free, um, Dr. Gray, our deputy director, offers free uh, colonoscopies in the month of March. It's an effort with different um, people in the gastroenterology group. And so that's been really beneficial because there's not a lot around um, colonoscopy. There's a lot around breast. There's a program that, you know, Susan G. Komen supports. There's the Breast and Cervical Cancer Project. So there's a lot of things for women that can help them offset those coverages. So that's one of the big things that the center has started itself. Um, We're also looking into a mobile lung cancer screening unit. Um, So we always talk a lot about black-white disparities, but there's also a disparity in rural and Appalachian regions. very few hospitals, very few access to clinics. So we are able to take mobile units down there and give those individuals access to screenings and care that they may not normally have access to. So we've done a lot of trying to address sort of the where and the barriers. Um, So we're really good at that. Um, What we're trying to do now is kind of look at, well, what can we do to help support policy changes and those systemic things? And again, we had the anti-racism discussions within the James, but to look at, well, what can we do better as far as being a system um, that might have, you know, some racist tendencies or policies? What can we do to look at those and fix those as well? So, again, trying to look at it from all sides. Um, We do have um, programming where we reach out to high school students. We work with the Metro um, High School here, and we have students come in and do disparities um, projects and research. And we also have a um, summer program in health disparities where we've had um, students come from Brigham Young University. We've worked with medical students here at OSU. And then we sponsor, through Pelotonia Dollars, six students, um, three from um, Wilberforce and then three from Central State, so the historically black colleges here in Ohio. And they get to learn resume building and how to do posters, and they get to 
do research and have they have a mentor within the cancer center. So really trying to again also promote the diversity in cancer and in healthcare because again that's part of the problem too. You know we don't have as many um, providers of color that that we should. One of the things I. I've heard from other doctors, Daryl Gray, who you mentioned, who's been on the podcast, and I, I've been to that clinic where they do the uh, screening colonoscopies, is that uh, African-Americans, particularly African-American men, have a higher incident rate of certain kinds of cancer, such as colon cancer, and a higher death rate mm-hmm. than um, the general population. And, and there's other minority groups as well. And it seems that also what you said about rural Appalachia and poverty and uh, racism seem to go together and create um, geographical locations where there's just not the healthcare access, there's not the screening access, people don't have healthcare, they don't have primary care physicians. So it's all that ties together and leads to later diagnoses and poorer results. Right. So, and and I think it's the black-white disparity is the biggest, but we're starting to see disparities in other groups. Um, and I think, again, what race is a social construct. Race isn't really real. There's one race, the human race, but right. race matters, right? We we make people fill out their race when we're doing research, and we make them fill out race on everything, and we look at disparities by race, but. We also tend to do a disservice in some groups because, again, we're, we're research-minded, and if there's not enough people for it to be statistically significant, we roll them all up together. So, for instance, um, when you start looking at Hispanics and certain Asian populations, we roll everything up. We don't look at Mexicans versus Puerto Ricans or Filipinos versus um you know, the Hmong community. And when you start looking within those subgroups, there's even more disparities. So we're learning that maybe we need to de-aggregate data and look at um, d- uh, different individuals by their countries of origin because you could then have disparities within those groups that we're missing because we're rolling them up into one large group. So we're starting to encourage people to do some of that as well. Um, we're trying to capture people by country of origin, not just saying, are you Hispanic, yes or no? Um, and so that we can sort of really look at, well, what are those issues within those populations and what can we do to help with, you know, barriers or access issues, um, and if there's cultural things that we can look at and support, what are those? And really trying to again address the issues for those groups um, individually. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Chastity and I were going to talk about COVID nineteen and how that has shown a spotlight on healthcare disparity and some of the things that the James and Ohio State are doing to help people. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At the James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Chastity Washington, the director of the Center for Cancer Health Equity here at the James. And now we're going to talk about COVID-19. And this is obviously the, the most 
important healthcare issue going on right now. How, so, Chastity, how does it impact underserved and minority populations? Right. So I think um, the COVID-19 pandemic has shown folks in real time that these disparities exist in these communities. You, we could say all the time, um, you know, this population has a higher incidence rate of cancer or heart disease. And it doesn't really mean a lot because you're not seeing people, you know, die. You're not seeing the daily counts and the things that we're seeing in the pandemic. But it's essentially the same issues, right? So we said place matters. So where you live matters. And it stems back to, again, the systemic racism and redlining and where people were allowed to live. Um, but so then public transportation, a lot of these individuals, you know, have to use public transportation. So they're in close, close proximities. They have essential jobs, so and they can't work from home. So again, they're going out, they're being exposed potentially to COVID-19. Um, they may not live in a house where they can social distance, you know, if someone does get COVID and it tests positive. Um, they may live in multi-generational households, again, so multiple people in one dwelling. Um, so social distancing is not um, as easily done in those populations. Um, access to testing. So, you know, where were the t- testing sites when it, this all first started? I mean, we have more pop-up testing and more testing with Columbus Public Health. But again, if you can't get to those testing locations or um, they're not some in a location near you or you can't drive through because you don't have a vehicle, those are also disparities um, that these people are experiencing. And so if you don't know, if you have it, you don't know to quarantine or isolate. Um, and it just it's, it impacts more and more and more back on those social determinants of health. Um, in those communities. It seems like in any sort of national crisis, a recession, a depression, a healthcare crisis, that poor people are always going to be impacted more because they have less resources and their resources run out quicker. Correct. I mean, and if you've seen anything in the, the news about the cost of, I mean, even food, right? So, if you're already in a low-income area, you're already, you know, having issues with food security, the price of food now is just going to impact that even more. So that affects your health. Um, and then we, we saw this with the kids. You know, we had them all go to virtual online learning, but not everybody had the Internet access. Not everybody had the right. Chromebooks or the laptops to, to do that. Um, so we did a lot of that. So once the pandemic hit, we switched some of our focus from cancer to sort of helping those populations with COVID resources. So we were connecting them to um, some of the internet providers had free 90-day internet services. So we were helping people connect to that, um, helping the businesses with the with the loans that they were allowed to get. You know, they were um, difficult to fill out the paperwork. So we had people helping them fill out the paperwork in the Somali community for Somali businesses. Um, so again, those sorts of barriers, if you're not familiar with that, um, and those processes, even when there are resources, you can't easily always access those. Um, yeah, especially if, if you have English is not your first language. Correct. It's it's intimidating if it is filling out forms. And, and if you can't do it online, that makes it harder. So there's just so many obstacles and hurdles that people in the lower socio socioeconomic levels have to deal with. And that's where you come in. Right. So, 
And I think I think it was great that we were allowed to switch during the pandemic time and do some of that. We did translations of um, information on how to wear masks, and they, we did some videos, and we worked with our interpreter services here and, you know, made us a, a website for people who were tech savvy that could go and find different resources in different languages that they could then share within those communities. Um, and again, we did some, like I said, Facebook videos on how to wear a mask and how to social distance and providing resources where the pantries are, where you could go to get all these different things. Um, and so I think, again, being able to do those things as a center is rewarding, um, especially, you know, now in this global pandemic time where all of these things are even more um, urgent in these communities. Now, you've mentioned the term redlining a couple times, yes. and I think I know what that is and how it um, applies to real estate and the purchase of homes. But explain what it is and how that has led to uh, segregations and the creation of uh, just uh, lower class neighborhoods. So redlining is historically how it's tied back to how some of the home ownership loans were given. And there were ratings from A to D in the property that people were able to get. So A was sort of the best property and the best neighborhoods. Um, and then D was the lower or worst locations, usually around industry. Highways would go, you know, run through those neighborhoods. They might be near manufacturing. And that's a lot of where, if they were allowed to get home ownership loans, a lot of people of color were then given um, residents in those areas. In the D areas. In the D areas. And they couldn't get mortgages in, in the, the A areas. areas. Correct. So, to, so that was basically segregating them out of the nicer neighborhoods and school systems. Right. And so this is, like I think, in the 1930s, and we're still seeing that today. So um, the Kerwin Institute here does a really good job and has a lot of presentations on these sorts of topics. And they have shared a map that shows pretty much what it was like then and what it's like now. And there's really been no change in the racial and ethnic breakdown of people who live in the A, the B, the C, and the D. A little bit of movement between the B and the C, but again, most people of color, most um, you know Hispanics, Latinos, uh, African Americans live in these C and D neighborhoods. And then if you go and add um, you know infant mortality data, cancer disparities, the COVID-19 pandemic um, disparities, if you overlay all of those maps, um, incidence, mortality rates, you're going to see that a lot of them are in those areas where that redlining took place. So again, we say place matters, right? So they're going to be a place with a higher rate of African-American incarceration. All of those things, I mean, not exact overlays, but there are certain zip codes that again, absorb the brunt of these health disparities. And you can trace a lot of that back to that original redlining over 70-some years ago. See, I think understanding this is one of the steps towards changing this. And so that's why it's important for you and others to tell this history, to tell how it's impacted what's going on today and will continue to go on, and even more so how we can change it and how we must change it in order to have a fair and equitable society. Right. And like I said, it's it's resources, too. I mean, some of those neighborhoods, you have um, no grocery stores or no grocery stores that... Food um, deserts. Yep, food yeah. deserts that they can walk to. Or even if you catch a bus, like, can you imagine? I don't know how many groceries you buy. I have two boys at home. I couldn't imagine bringing that amount of groceries home on a bus or trying to walk 
you know, um, to get that amount of food. There, there's two grocery stores within a mile of my house in Clintonville. Right. So. And so that's not always the case. And then, you know, we've heard things about women who, you know, have WIC for their children and need to go get milk and they can't get it because there's no grocery store. And then the convenience stores um, won't accept WIC because there's um, a policy or something where if they don't have a certain number of um, or amount of milk product on their shelves, they get fined. So therefore, you know, they don't want to accept WIC because then all the women will come in and buy those and they'll get penalized. So like I said, that's a policy thing. That's a something that we could look at and, and change. Why do they need to be penalized if they don't have milk on their shelves? What, and, what, what is WIC? Uh, women, Infant, and Children Program through the state. And it provides. And it provides, yeah. yes. So women who fit certain income guidelines and have children can get things like formula. And so it's an assistance program. And so, again, you have women in these zip codes that are on this program but then can't get access to the things, um, you know, that the service provides. So I think everyone listening can tell about your passion for this, <laughs> your motivation. But where does that come from? When did you, in your career, decide that this is how, this is what I want to do, this is who I want to help? So I've always wanted to do something in health. I wasn't sure what it was. I bounced around. So maybe I'll be a physician, maybe I'll be a nurse. But then um, when I was at Ohio State, someone talked to me about public health and all the things that that it involved. And it kind of just made sense because I would rather not see people get sick than to, to treat them. I'd rather do things to intervene and make their health a priority and make things better. And then, again, looking at my own family, we have histories of heart disease, diabetes, we had pancreatic cancer. And again, knowing that those disparities exist in my community, what could I do to help, you know, people that look like me, people who come from places like me, my family is from Brown County, Ohio. So not necessarily Appalachia, but it's a rural setting on the Ohio River. Um, So again, what could I do to give back and sort of help with those disparities? Um, and then when I one of my first jobs out of college was with the American Cancer Society, and I got to meet a wonderful group of women that were working with African American health disparities. And then after that, that was it. I was just, you know, this is what I need to do. This is where I need to be. Um, the opportunity came with the James to be in this center that that's what they're focusing on. That's what they're doing. And I jumped on that opportunity and have been here since December 2002 and wouldn't change a thing. So this the the Center for Cancer Health Equity here, how rare is that at a cancer center? And and maybe even historically it's been around close to twenty years. How new was that when it was formed? So yeah, when we started it was pretty new. So um in terms of nationally? Yeah, so we're a comprehensive cancer center and part of what we're measured on is um outreach and education and diversity and inclusion in our our center, but that's really grown. So that was the onus for creating the department way back then, but there weren't very many um, centers like ours. And they're starting to grow now because the Cancer Center has made that a priority or the National Cancer Institute has made that a priority, but we were sort of ahead of the game. So, you know, I applaud the leadership of the James for creating this department and allowing it to grow and funding it. They put money behind it, and that's huge. A lot of these departments that are starting to um, form in these cancer centers, um, they may have one or two staff, and they're 
rely heavily on grant funds, and we've been blessed and fortunate to actually have money to support our staff um, and grow. And so, again, it's it's fairly new um, that other people are starting to have these centers, but um, I will say that we were sort of ahead of the game, and Dr. Pasquet is really um, well-known for community outreach and engagement. Um, so we also have a lot of centers that contact us and reach out to us, um, you know, to you know, how do you do it? And so that's also been, I think, um, part of my passion and, and pride in being a part of such a wonderful center. What gives you optimism in this? In I mean, the, things have been at least being talked about more recently in the past four or five, six months. But what gives you optimism that we are headed in the right direction, that we are going to really focus on social justice, on equality, how do you, what do you see happening? I mean, I think if you just watch the protest on TV and see the different races and ages and everyone coming together, I think the fact that we've made public um, racism a public health issue, I think that's huge. I think all the discussions and dialogues, like I said, people that I've talked to, um, we're busier than ever now as the center. Like people are coming to us, what can we do? You know, how do we fix this? Um, you know, we've got um, uh, recently in the past year, we've actually hired a program manager that looks at LGBTQ issues. So we've had people coming to us, you know, asking about how they can collect that information um, on their patients at registration. So they even know if they have that population that they're serving and what are those issues? Um, how do we do um, implicit bias training? How do we, you know, um, educate our staff? How do we look at being mentors outside of these walls? You know, we want to increase the diversity in nursing. We want to, you know, what can we do? So I think that has given me hope. Um, it's also given us uh, a lot of work, but um, <laughs> so it's job security, right? So yeah. I think that is what is keeping me cautiously optimistic. I mean, it could all fade eventually, but I think this is the longest I've seen ongoing movement, ongoing discussion in progress around these issues. So um, like I said, I'm hopeful and I know we'll keep doing what we need to do um, in keeping the message out there and keeping the dialogue going. So, Well, good. Keep that dialogue going because that's important. And thanks for sharing it with us and telling us all about the great and important work that you and your center do. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Chastity, if anyone listening has been inspired by you and believes in what you and the center are doing and wants to get involved, how can they contact you and get involved? So they can email me directly, and I will say this slowly. It's C-H-A-S-I-T-Y dot W-A-S-H-I-N-G-T-O-N at O-S-U-M-C dot E-D-U, and I will um, respond, connect them to the right person, and get them involved in, in any way that they're interested. Um, we're always looking forward for people to help. Okay. Thank you. And thank you for sharing all the great work you and the center do and keeping the dialogue going. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.